Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another episode of the Showtime with Roman podcast. I'm your host, Roman RBC, and today, oh my goodness, it has been so long uh, since I've podcasted, so I'm just going to get right into it. It's been a while since I've podcasted just because I've been prioritizing a lot of other things over podcasting, unfortunately. Um, a couple of video games have come out that's been taking up a lot of my time that I've been focusing on. Um, I've been working on a couple projects regarding video essays, and I've been seeing a lot of movies, I've been working on a couple things, and then I just haven't made time for podcasting. So that's on my end, that's why I've been gone. So I'm sorry for frequent listeners. So basically, this is me just getting my feet wet again. Um, I really didn't want to make it this inconsistent with the podcast, considering it was my first couple months in doing so. Um, But basically all I'm going to do is I'm going to recap October couple movies I saw, a couple notable ones, all all but two films are 2018 releases, and then I'm going to round out the show with uh, some thoughts from uh, one of the listener, listeners, uh, Zachary Sosland. Um, so, first things first, I really, obviously, want to be a film critic, and one of my most anticipated films of the year. Now, this is kind of funny, because my most anticipated film of the year was Mission Impossible Fallout, and I didn't have internet during that time, so I couldn't podcast for my most anticipated film of the year. My second most anticipated film of the year was First Man. And then the week before, I didn't podcast because I just lost track of time. And I didn't make time for it, like I said at the top of the show. Well, literally a minute ago. So, First Man, um, just what an experience. Um, I saw it in IMAX, uh, just like I saw Mission Impossible Fallout. And same theater, almost the same exact seat. Um, I went one row forward because I was the first person to buy tickets for the show. And I looked up the absolute best seat for for IMAX. And I picked the best one in the house. And it was an incredible experience. So, First Man, uh, directed by Damien Chazelle, starring Ryan Gosling and Claire Foy. Uh, There's just so much to talk about. Honestly, it hasn't really left my head since the night I saw it, um, and the music is incredible. I listen to it frequently. Um, one of the best scores of the year for sure. And Ryan Gosling is someone that I feel like still doesn't get enough credit for just how truly talented he is. He really reminds me of Jimmy Stewart in a lot of ways. I know that's going to sound insane, but for when I, I've been watching a lot of Jimmy Stewart movies uh, just in the last year. And a lot of what Jimmy Stewart does, he brings, every time he's in a frame, or every time he's on screen, he brings this instant charm, this instant likability, and he just brings so much depth to these characters that he plays, just in the way that he expresses with emotions, almost like he doesn't even have to say any words. Just look at, like, Rear Window, for example. He's in the same spot for almost the entire film, uh, just peering out his window and figuring, trying to, like, solve this crime, basically, and he gets himself caught in a crazy scenario, right? So, for him to just create and build this world, oh well, this is also due to Hitchcock, one of the greatest filmmakers to ever live, to just build this world and just give so much depth and so much nuance to this world just by kind of just using expressions and really just having to sit in a chair, a wheelchair, the entire film is incredible and, and truly beautiful. And I think that Ryan Gosling does the same thing. Yes, he hasn't played a role like that, but what he's done is look at Blade Runner 2049, and for those of you that have seen First Man, you should definitely see it. It made, like, no money compared to a lot of other shitty films that came out in October, which I'll get to later, but, you know, he's someone that is just using a lot of his emotions to express feeling and convey just incredible uh, power beneath every single 
uh, frame. And it's honestly incredible. And it truly complements every film he's in. He can do comedy like the nice guys. He could be in a, um, was he in a blockbuster recently? I can't, can't really think, but no, he was in drive another movie where he uses, doesn't really have a lot of dialogue. He just uses facial expressions to convey emotion and just, you know, just themes for the film. Uh, I heard he also does the same in only God, God forgives of which I haven't seen yet, but he's just a tremendous actor. And so what he does with Neil Armstrong here, also credit due to uh, Damien Chazelle for obviously bringing this to the table. But the movie, the way that it's shot is, to me, the best cinematography of the year. There's this really personal, intense relationship with the characters. And in choosing to go this route, what it does is it allows Neil, who's someone who seems very distant, very cold, uh, very far away, just like the moon... You know, we know that this figure is just a legend. He's cemented in mythology, American history forever as an icon, right? And so the camera is very personal and very close and very attached. But Neil is so distant. And that really complements what the entire film is about. You know, obviously it's based on a true story, so there's not really much to spoil here. You know, he gets on the moon. But I said it in my review uh, for Roman's Movie Reviews on Facebook, you know, just... When he's the absolute farthest away from people, that's when he's the closest. And that, to me, perfectly sums up the film and just really what is conveyed through performances, through directing, through dialogue, through lighting. The lighting in this film was incredible. Um, it really inspired me to just look at more technical terms to contribute to my writing uh, to allow for a more in-depth analysis of the films that I watch. And so, like... There's a lot of top lighting, a lot of soft lighting, and it just really complements everything the film is about. There's constant shots of like the uh, the light from the moon shining in the sky, just you know hovering over these people because they know that's the objective and how far away and how impossible it seems. And uh, the movie just is just a release of emotion and just a release of and just this exertion of you know finally re- releasing that pain. Um, at the right time. So incredible film, my favorite film of the year so far. I just blown away. Uh, so I gave that a, I believe I gave it like a 97 or 98 out of a hundred. Uh, so right up there. So next up, one of my other most anticipated films of the fall directed by one of my favorite upcoming directors, David Lowry, the old man and the gun who directed, uh, Pete's dragon and a ghost story. Um, Pete's Dragon, very paint by numbers, but the way that he handles it is very impressive. It's my favorite Disney live action film to date so far. Um, that's with, you know, I haven't seen Cinderella yet, which I probably would like because Kenneth Branagh is also another director that I really enjoy, uh, watching his films and the old man and the gun, uh, starring Robert Redford and Sissy Spacek is just a really wholesome film. Uh, a movie that just is very comforting. It's a, just a 90-minute runtime, uh, if that. That's with credits. So about 85 minutes long. And it's just a really wholesome film. And it feels like it's just a swan song for his uh, career. I haven't seen a lot of Robert Redford movies, but I did recently watch The Candidate, uh, which was okay. Um, I haven't seen, actually, uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which I'm sure this movie is a testament to that. Because I know bits and pieces about the film. Um, more bits and pieces that I would like personally, but the old man and the gun is just, just a really relaxing film. And I just love that David Lowry, um, in with the ghost story with Pete dragon and with old man and the gun, he's been able to deliver these films that just feel so very kind. And they touch the human spirit in really unique ways because with Pete's dragon, it's just this unbelievable 
an unparalleled kindness that we need to give to animals, creatures, beings, you know, that are different from us and that we need to show appreciation and love for them just like, you know, the boy does in the film. And with the ghost story, that's a little bit more existential, sure, but they're the way he portrays a ghost, you know, obviously they're, you know, Halloween time, it's portrayed more ghoulish and more ghastly and more terrifying, right, as haunting. But in a ghost story, it kind of has vibes of that occasionally, but it's treated more as a figure of loss, of pain, of suffering, of longing uh, for purpose. And I think that what he does is there's a couple key sequences in that film, which I won't dive into too much as to not take up too much time, but he really touches into you know, our humanity, you know, what does it mean to live on past our time here on earth? What, what's going to happen to us? Or, and what I took away from the film is that in a ghost story, you know, we're going after this life, we have another life to live. We're still going to be learning. We're still going to be feeling emotions. We're still going to search for a longing for purpose, just like we do now. So nothing really changes outside of the fabric of our existence and our tangibility, um, and our, and just a, a palpable sense of living. Um, so it's just a beautiful film. One of my favorite films of last year as well. Um, the old man and the gun is probably going to end up in a similar spot by year's end. We'll see. There's still a lot left, uh, to come out this year, but then the old man and the gun, it's just, it's about this really old guy that just loves doing what he loves to do. And to me, that just really spoke to me because I'm only 22 years old. I'm not that old. Sometimes I feel old. Sometimes it feels like my body is literally caving in sometimes. Um, but it's just a movie about, you know, just because you get older, that doesn't mean you have to stop doing what you love. And, and that really inspired me in many ways. And I think that his relationship with Casey Affleck's character, uh, although there's not like a lot of interactions between them, you just feel this utmost respect and utmost sincerity uh, towards each other. And it's just a, another dynamite film from David Lowry, who I just can't wait to see what he does next. He's an incredible director. So I gave that a four and a half out of five. I think I gave it like a 90 out of 100. Uh, just a really incredible film. Uh, you should definitely see it if you get the chance. Next up, probably going to spend a little bit of time on this one. Um, I was li just listening to the Talon Brothers podcast, which actually really inspired me to just get off my ass and start podcasting uh, this week. Maybe even do a couple episodes this week um, when I got the free time. So they talked about Bohemian Rhapsody and uh, a lot of the issues they had because none of them liked it, uh, just like I did. I didn't like the film uh, really at all. Um, outside of a couple things, uh, Nate Talon certainly liked it a little bit more than Nick and Tyler, but so my thoughts, Queen is my favorite band of all time. Their, their music, like it's just so much range and they just make me feel so many emotions. Uh, Bohemian Rhapsody obviously being the pinnacle of their entire, uh, of their entire style. Really? I mean, it's, it's operatic. It's crazy. It's silly, and it includes some incredible vocals and a lot of unique, uh, a lot of unique uh, sound editing and sound mixing. It's honestly an incredible piece of music, and pr my personal favorite song of all time. I would also contend that Freddie Mercury is the greatest vocalist and probably one of the greatest, the greatest performer that's ever lived. Um, I've just gone back and watched so many videos recently because of the film and because of the incredible finale in that film, but just the way that he was able to just reach out to his audience and just hold their hands almost as if he was sitting on the stands with them is just incredible. Um, I recently watched and rewatched the live aid concert. Um, the actual one from 1985, I believe. And just his authenticity and his passion for music. And, um, although the movie, you know, I, I know a lot of about queen and a lot about Freddie Mercury's story, of course, but 
outside of you know what the film shows me shows us is that you know he was going through a lot at that time and the live aid concert under the circumstances he was in with other people unaware of what he was going through was a really emotional moment for me because i just love when you can tell that the movie doesn't really care to tell the story properly but there's little bits of that in there just in some of the cinematography which is just fascinating uh and incredible there's a couple shots in there that just blew my mind outside of some wonky cgi but it's it's incredible the how he was able to just be this incredible performer for so many people thousands and millions and billions of people and i actually got in an argument the other night with someone about queen saying that you know their music influenced music forever we might not know music the way we do now as quick as we have without queen because they their style is so different like i just go always going to go back to bohemian rhapsody but that song like name me another song like bohemian rhapsody and you probably can't do it and if so it's probably a super obscure song i mean it's honestly incredible what they were able to pull off and you know i've read some of what you know it took to create that song just the way they kind of set it up and what they the instruments they had to use and things they had to incorporate it was just it was so ambitious and they were patient and they were able to just create this incredible piece of music so with the film being titled bohemian rhapsody a rhapsody which they say in the film is a dramatic poem the reason they title the film bohemian rhapsody is because they want to make it a dramatic poem about freddie's life here's the problem it's really bad and the reason it's really bad is because the script is really bad and the script is really bad because the director doesn't care to really tell the story that should be told this is partly uh partly due to brian may and um i forget i always forget the drummer's name roger something this is partly due to them not wanting to paint themselves in a bad light because the movie kind of vilifies freddie mercury and there's a couple opinions out there that say they vilify him due to his homosexuality of which i don't agree with but they vilify him in a way because if they tried to vilify themselves because they were doing similar things that Freddie was doing. And so they don't want that perception of them because they're still alive. And I still believe that they love Freddie Freddie and they were trying to do the best thing they, or the right thing that they thought was going to be right for them and for the audience. But it was just very selfish because Freddie Mercury is someone who has inspired so many people and is like, was an icon for, you know, what was going on with AIDS during that time. And he only died a few short years after that. And, it just, it felt, the whole first half of the film is just in shambles. It just rushes through everything. It doesn't care to take the time to really show this relationship. Like, I think Nick mentioned in the Talon Brothers podcast, he goes, you know, they said something about how they're family. And I was like, you've been in like two scenes together. You're talking about an album. You're talking about, and it's like, there's no patience. And for a band so ambitious and so patient, the movie is so formulaic and unmotivated that it never feels like it earns anything, which is surprising because I do love the ending. But I think I love the ending simply in part because Rami Malek is an incredible performer. A lot of people say it's uh, an impression and not a performance, and I would highly disagree. There were so many times when I was like, oh, my God, that's Freddie. I mean, Freddie Mercury was a little bit more full in the face, but Rami Malek turns in an incredible performance. Just the way he's able to channel every fiber of Freddie's being on stage blew my mind. And some of the way, just the way he was able to talk, his mannerisms, I was like, this is an incredible performance. And I think that he is probably going to end up being nominated for best actor. If not, he's just going to miss out. But the other performance as well, Ben Hardy, who plays, uh, I, th- I think it's Roger Taylor. I 
could be wrong. But uh, Roger Taylor, uh, the drummer, and he's he's cast perfectly. I'm forgetting the guy that plays the bass player, the actor's name. I see him in so much stuff, and I never forget, you know, the movies that he's in. And then I think his name is pronounced Willem Lee, who plays Brian May, the guitarist. I think they cloned Brian May and just got a younger version of him because he looks exactly like him. Um, and he was great as well. So the whole cast is great. Lucy Boynton, who is just a great up-and-coming star who was in Apostle. She was in Sing Street. She was in uh, she was in another movie, uh, Murder on the Orient Express. She's just a great little actress, and I hope she's in more. Um, in regards to his homosexuality, um, I was ha- talking to Tyler, my friend Tyler, about it uh, briefly because we haven't been talking much lately. Uh, but we kind of briefly talked about how the film really – sort of ignores a lot of key points because he makes a great point in the podcast that Freddie, you know, he had like this crazy, apparently like big one night event with like a bunch of dudes or something. And they, I mean, they, it's implied in all this. I mean, personally, I know most of the story, so it's like, I don't need to see that again. But at the same time, I think if you're going to respect a character or respect a person who actually lived, you've got to do that. And I think that there's a lot of, you know, controversy right now centered around certain things that I don't necessarily agree with. Um, but I know a lot of people that I've talked to that are part of the LGBT community that are film critics that didn't appreciate the way that it was portrayed simply because they tried to maneuver around it and they tried to vilify someone who was homosexual. And so by default, that makes them like, Hey, you're totally vilifying this dude for doing things that you were doing as well. So what the hell? Um, it's just a, bizarre movie just in the way it's edited and what's strange too is that the second half of the film i actually think is quite better than the first not in part not entirely due to the fact of the content that they give us but just at least there is a sense of patience and pace and length and understanding to stretch out scenes to give proper development to these people to give us a story to tell us a fully fleshed out story because the first half doesn't do it this is just a montage of like um like a outline of Freddie going to like Tokyo and Osaka and Europe and America. And it's one of the worst montages I've ever seen. And here's why Tyler mentions it in the podcast as well. He goes, the movie just plays queen music almost at random times. And I even mentioned that in my review. I said that the movie, you know, it, it's so strange the way that they incorporated music into this film because they took all of the Queen's greatest hits. They excluded some of the songs that I feel like should have been added, which is a missed opportunity, but I'm not going to get too much into that. But you have all these great songs, but they don't complement the film in any way. The movie starts with somebody to love. I know a couple of people think that the intro to the film is great. I thought it was pretty poor, just in the way that it was shot, just in the way that it was edited. The editing for this film is an atrocity. It is just an embarrassment. And with that editing... It just creates a film that is just a total mess. It's almost slightly incoherent at times. There's just lines that give brief little explorations into character, but it just it's just a mess. It's not a good film. I gave it a 2 out of 5. I believe I gave it a 40 out of 100. And it's just really upsetting because it was one of my most anticipated films of the year. I think the cinematography is quite good. Um, but the three core elements, I think, to telling a proper story, direction script and editing not there and i don't necessarily the film needed an r rating i don't think that is a requirement because then again if it's an r rating it has to check other boxes and it has to do those things properly so i can't guarantee that if the movie were r it would be better sure it could extend out you know certain scenes and give us a little bit more insight into certain aspects of freddie's life and what was going on with the band but 
that doesn't guarantee it was going to be better. Uh, it's just not a guarantee at all. So, Bohemian Rhapsody, bad film. Next up, a uh, premiere or film for Jonah Hill, mid-90s. So, short little film, just like Old Man and the Gun. Not going to spend too much time on this. Just a simple coming-of-age tale. Um, similar to this year's Minding the Gap, uh, which is a documentary that you can find on Hulu. Directed by uh, a kid from my hometown, Rockford, Illinois. And it is one of the best films of the year. It's still one of my favorites. Uh it's just an outstanding film, and mid-90s is kind of channeling that same vibe, whereas um, Minding the Gap was set more in our modern era. So there's a lot more things that we're, we can relate to now if uh, if you're born in, like, right around my time, 1955, 1966, 1997. Um, did I say 1966? I don't know what's happening here, but mid-90s. If you were born in the mid-90s, Minding the Gap is going to be perfect for you. Um, but... For anyone that was born just before us, mid-90s, the film directed by Jonah Hill, is going to be a little bit more in your wheelhouse. I still love the film. I think it was a movie that told a, just a simple slice of life. Um, do characters go through some insane development like they would in a Richard Linklater film? No. I don't entirely think so. But at the same time, I don't think all movies have to. This is going to sound weird. And I've seen a couple Terrence... I've seen one Terrence Malick flick in full. And I've seen bits and pieces in big chunks of pieces of Terrence Malick films. And it reminded me a lot of that because a lot of the characters in Malick films are very distant, very cold, and there's not a lot of development there, but it's still tells us like kind of slice of life stories about something about us, how, you know, these kids were the, this kid, Stevie, he was, you know, just a kid who had a pretty crappy mom. Uh, well, not a crappy mom necessarily, but she, she just lived a complicated life. And his brother's a total jerk, played by Lucas Hedges, who's in everything. Um, and his brother's abusive. He doesn't really have a father figure. So one day he sees a couple kids skating and he wants to get in on uh, the skating action, the skating life, because he's a young kid and he's inspired by that. And this is what's so incredible about film is that we're all going to view film uh, differently from our own perspectives. But the film reminded me a lot of my younger brother um, when we first moved out to Arizona uh, because just I remember seeing my brother kind of go through similar progressions that Stevie goes through and the whole time I just couldn't help but think about that and how I just could connect with viewing that film viewing that film from my perspective because it's like I was viewing my brother going through those stages all over again and it's I thought it was just it's another one of my favorite films of the year I thought it was outstanding I thought just the way that it was able to convey those things properly and able to translate that era mid 90s into and still make it relatable today was fascinating because it's just that's what's so beautiful about film so i I really loved it i know a lot of people aren't as high in it and and are very disappointed with it but again just from my perspective and my you know experiences it just really did it for me and i and i loved it so uh mid 90s was great uh, just going to keep these next two brief before I get into the last one. Uh, the Shining. I uh, saw that on the big screen for Tuesday Night Classics at Harkins Theaters. The Shining is a film I've seen once. I saw it on Blu-ray uh, at my house, and it was one of the greatest experiences I've ever had. Little did I know that that experience, one of the greatest experiences I've ever had, will be upped by the single, probably the greatest experience I've ever had in a theater, uh, watching The Shining. And earlier this year, I saw Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, uh, of which uh, one of the greatest experiences I've ever had. So these two movies, The Shining and 2001, two of the greatest experiences I've ever had in a theater, better than any 2018, 2017, 2016 release I've had. Um, 
maybe outside of Arrival, um, possibly. Uh, but The Shining is just a masterclass of filmmaking. Just my favorite horror film. It's just incredible. Stanley Kubrick's a god. He just understands every single thing about filmmaking and how to do it to the absolute best level uh, that it can possibly be done. From performances, from atmosphere, from what the film I think is about. Now I have a little. Now that I've seen it twice, and I specifically waited to see it twice because when we see a film a second time, we're watching the movie for what it is rather than what we thought it would be. Every time, even if you know plot beat to plot beat, narrative stroke to narrative stroke, the first time you see a film is the purest way you're going to see a film. So you're taking everything in for the first time. That's why I say the second viewing of a film is the most important because now we're seeing the film for what it is rather than what we thought it would be. And I go back to War for the Planet of the Apes, a movie I was semi-disappointed by the first time I saw it. I rewatched it in 4K and I was like, whoa, I love this film way more than I thought I did. Or I mean, I didn't like it that much the first time I saw it, but now I'm like, wow, this film is great because I'm now watching it for what it actually is rather than what I expected. Um so The Shining, incredible film. I think it's about just a cycle of violence uh, from white men specifically that have come into this land, spilled the blood of thousands, millions of Native Americans and taken over their land. There's a piece of dialogue early on in the film about how the Overlook Hotel was built on an Indian burial ground and they had to like defend off a couple natives along the way. And I think he refers to them as Redskins even, so... The, some of the characters are just derogatory towards uh, people of color, women, and children. Uh, just look at uh, uh, Jack Torrance's descent into darkness and how, you know, it almost kind of, it's a compliment on domestic violence and how in the household like, against his wife and child. And there's a couple instances in the film where he talks about how, you know, three months ago there was an accident, but then again, later in the film, they say it was like nine months ago. So, there's probably multiple instances, but it's an incredible film. Absolute stone-cold masterpiece, uh, The Shining. Um, the week after, I saw A Nightmare on Elm Street, the original, uh, in theaters. Thanks again to Harkins for Tuesday Night Classics. A movie that I didn't quite love the first time I saw it, but I saw it in theaters. And like I say, the best experience uh, with the film is always going to be in the theater because that's the best place to see it. Best sound, best picture, best seats, uh, most pure place. Now, the audience I was with... Probably the worst audience I've ever had. They laughed at a lot of the stuff. Fair, the movie is a little cheesy. But Wes Craven, what he does is he understands what he's working with. He understands that the concept is cheesy. But the writing, the writing for A Nightmare on Elm Street, it might be some of the best horror writing I've ever seen. It's not as simple as Halloween, which is fascinating because... He is, it's just another slasher film, but what he is able to introduce and what he does with these concepts and ideas is he takes these cheesy things, he kind of dials up the cheesiness, like the mom, she, her, she has like this bottle of vodka, I think that just gets increasingly bigger within like the span of 10 minutes. And it's it's just hilarious and her acting and the final shot of the film when she gets sucked into like the doorway or the door glass hole or whatever is just hilarious. But at the same time, he understands what he's working with. Therefore, that when all these other people are laughing at these cheesy elements, it's done for a purpose and done for meaning. And I think that Wes Craven is always someone who's been self-aware. Just even look at the Scream franchise being a play on the slasher genre, a movie that I prefer over Friday the 13th by a million miles. And the original Friday the 13th anyways, um, which I think is just a total train wreck of a film. Uh, But Nightmare on Elm Street is just 
a movie that I love now. It's one of my favorite horror films. Seeing it on the big screen was just incredible. There's the music is just straight out of a fucking dream. Oops. I have no idea why I just dropped the F bomb. I just, I got so hyped talking about a nightmare on Elm Street. I apologize. I have no intention to make this, uh, that type of podcast. I'm sorry, but, uh, a nightmare on Elm Street is just an awesome film. Uh, I cannot wait to watch it again. I saw it with my 16 year old sister for her birthday. Uh, she really liked it too. And it blew my mind when we got out of the theater and we were talking about the audience. Uh, cause there's two guys in front of us that literally like, it could be like just any moment a scene would edit or like fade and they would laugh. And I just was like, this what is happening? Like, why did I have to pick these seats out of all seats? Uh, but after the film, you know, we were kind of talking about it and she hadn't seen it before. And she's someone who loves horror films, loves like the conjuring and it follows and all that stuff. I was like, what'd you think? She's like, I really liked it. I had a lot of fun. And we kind of talked about the audience, like I said, and she said, yeah, you know, people, you know, they watch films, you know, so differently than I feel like they should be. She was like, they should watch films just as if they were an audience member from when the film came out. And I was like, wow, that's, I completely agree. So, uh, she really enjoyed it and she hit the nail on the head regarding audience members, but that's a nightmare on Elm street. Finally, uh, the last film I'll be talking about from the October recap, uh, Halloween 2018 directed by David Gordon green, starring Jamie Lee Curtis and everyone's favorite slasher, Michael Myers, which isn't entirely true. Uh, cause a lot of people love Freddie, a lot of people love Jason, a lot of people love Ghostface, a lot of people love, uh, haven't seen Texas Chainsaw, but the Texas Chainsaw guy, uh, Leatherface, I think his name is. And so Halloween 2018, oh man, another film super excited for, and I'm just going to say that it, it sucked. Um, I gave it a star and a half out of five. Um, it's just a movie that here's the thing. And I thought about doing a video essay on this and I think I still might do it. Halloween 2018 is everything I hate about franchise filmmaking. Um, from start to finish, front to back, up and down, left to right, diagonal, diagonal, whatever. Every frame. Uh, there's a couple things I like in it. Third act is quite good. Jamie Lee Curtis is good. Uh, the opening credits are good. Uh, the music is quite good. But other than that, I think the movie... What it does is that it's written by Danny McBride, who stars in like Pineapple Express and a bunch of movies with uh, James Franco and Seth Rogen. And... He's obviously a fan of the franchise, a fan of Halloween, so this movie is ignoring like a bunch of films that came out between the original Halloween in 1978 and this one. So, what the movie does is it calls back to the original Halloween, and apparently a lot of the other Halloween films I haven't seen that apparently do it better uh, from a lot of people who have seen the franchise in its entirety, every single film. And to me... This started with The Force Awakens, and Force Awakens gets a pass because of the franchise it's a part of. Force Awakens is a movie that has that pass card or that hall pass because that franchise has been about parallels and has been about history kind of repeating itself in a way. Because look at all three generations of Star Wars films. They're all relatively similar in a way, uh, just in terms of villains, in terms of structure sometimes. Uh, the prequels kind of struggle with this. They are a little bit different, sure. But the Star Wars franchise has a bunch of parallels, and they are films that, you know, are able to get away with it simply because of the franchise they're a part of. So it can make those callbacks. It can make those visual cues, sound cues, whatever. And I think they've, they're starting to trend away from that with The Last Jedi, which is a stone-cold, great film uh from front to back uh start to finish and i think i've said that twice already about two films in the last like five minutes but anyways moving on so 
Halloween, it takes like direct shots out of the original. The only one I've seen, like I mentioned, and it just flips them and which is kind of a spoiler, I guess. But honestly, it's like if you're continuing a film with a sequel, why don't you take what you love, incorporate familiar elements, expand the universe, expand the story, dive deeper into character and do something new. Now, Halloween it goes 2018, it goes bigger with its gore. A lot more kills, a lot more violence, which makes sense because the original, again, working on a very small budget and is probably the most technically proficient film uh, of all time. One of, for sure. Um, what John Carpenter did with that film is nothing short of incredible, just an absolute masterpiece. And with this one, David Gordon Green, you know, he just is like, hey, listen, we know that you guys love the original, so how about we just reuse a bunch of shots? We use a bunch of sound cues we reuse a bunch of lines we just flip things on their head and that's cool that's fun that you guys like that stuff right and i said this in my review for solo uh which again it, it reuses lines and reuses and you would you would think that i'm about to say oh it's a part of the star wars franchise it gets a pass but the difference between spinoff films and the regular saga is that the regular saga is the saga, like that's the main narrative, and these spinoffs are just supposed to be branching out. But Solo cl- plays it way too close to the chest in terms of uh, visuals, cues, audio cues, and so it's like if you're gonna create a spinoff and you're spinning off from the main saga, why don't you do something different? You don't try to incorporate all these familiar themes, these motifs, these characters saying certain lines from other films because. You're a spinoff. You're spinning off from what people already love, so make it a little bit different. I understand wanting to be familiar, but at the same time, be a little bit different. And then I think that's why I love The Last Jedi so much is I understand people have some issues with plot and pace and stuff like that. But, you know, that's besides the point. But back to Halloween, you know, what it does is it just, oh, he's back in Haddonfield, Illinois. He's trying to kill Jamie Lee Curtis for some apparent reason. You know, he's he's a supernatural entity that is palpable because he's a real dude it just a movie is a total disappointment was not a fan and it's just another 2018 film another one of these franchise films that is just trying to be like hey we know you love this so we're just gonna do it again because that's all these freaking studios can apparently think of think of something new do something different with your franchises like that's why the Marvel Cinematic Universe blows my mind because, like, that is a franchise that has, I think, 20, 21 films now. And people love that franchise because there's a bunch of new characters. I personally think a lot of the movies are pretty similar in regards to the fact that there's not really many themes. The only movies that really have themes to me are Guardians of the Galaxy, and I don't even think those movies are that good. And it's like, Avengers Infinity War does too, but that movie's a little bit different. So. It's like that franchise is a franchise, uh, how franchises should be done. You're talking about a franchise that is like, it can call back to what you love, but at the same time, it's still doing it in new ways. And it's still progressing the franchise forward to be able to tell new stories with sequels and spinoffs and potentially this new Disney streaming service with like Hawkeye and uh, Scarlet Witch and Loki and uh, Falcon and whoever else. I mean, it's just like that is how franchise filmmaking is done. That is why they're so dominant. And I hate to say it because I don't think the franchise is really that good overall in terms of consistency, in terms of quality uh, from what they actually put out. You know, 
it's kind of like the Netflix for me of like movie franchises. And I just wish that franchises would actually develop properly and actually gives us sequels that do things differently. I haven't seen the Halloween franchise in its entirety. Brendan Krauss, who's one of my favorite people to talk to about movies, didn't like the film like I did either. And he said this movie takes a bunch of stuff from stuff they deleted out of canon but those movies did something different. Like Halloween season three of the witch. A lot of people didn't like apparently because it wasn't like the first two see uh, and Halloween two does things differently. And it's like, Oh, well that isn't like the original. So now they just make this film as like, here's this film 40 years later, takes place 40 years later. And it's like, here's all this stuff. And I said it in my review. I said, it just wears the mask way too tight. Be your own thing. Loosen it up a little bit and just put on the costume. But don't be that same dude, you know? So I gave that a star and a half out of five. And I think like a 30 something out of a hundred, uh, pretty solid month of month of watching movies. There's a couple other films. I didn't get to talk about night of the living dead. Uh, 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 good morning from, I'm going to botch his first name. I'm just going to say Ozu who inspired, uh, first reform directors, Paul Schrader, um, in a lot of ways. And I definitely already see that just by watching good morning, uh, also, rest in peace, Filmstruck, the greatest streaming app, the greatest app of all time, allowing me to just completely see cinema in a new way and allowing me to open up and expand and broaden my horizons in film it is the greatest app of all time because it is one made for me and it's being canceled because it's apparently too niche, even though that's what it was basically made for is to be for that audience, for people like me who are actively seeking out these classics, these inner, it's not even just classics, it's international films, it's, it's, uh, conversational pieces about the film, there's commentary, for $11 a month, I can get access to most of the Criterion Collection, plus the Filmstruck streaming service, and I can watch hundreds and hundreds of movies, and they're adding new content every Friday, directors of the week, entire filmographies, entire actors, every film they've been in, movies that are, uh, in, like, for example, when some director came out and said that there's not enough women directors, Filmstruck dropped like 12 to 15 to 20 different films with, about from women directors that no one talks about because, again, that is what Filmstruck is for, to preserve old films, classic films, films that inspired the movies we watch today. And if we try and delete that from history and we try and erase that, it's just so dumb. It's so mind-blowing to me and... You know, just even going back to music, I had a music debate with people last night, you know, about music history and all these icons and how we see music today. And it's like, how can we can cherish all these old songs? But for film, it's almost like an impossible task. And people wonder, and, and these studios wonder, why do people go out and they, you know, try and uh, scrounge around and pirate films off the internet? It's because you're not giving us access to them. You're not going to produce them in physical media unless it's the Criterion Collection, which is on sale right now. And I'm going to abuse the shit out of that again for the second time this year. And then it's like that's the only time we get to see these films for a reasonable price. And it's physical media. And that's why, again, digital media is a problem. Contracts run out. Things get deleted. It's just like film is – I love it so much. And I've gone back in the last – a year just going back and watching old films so i can understand why i love the art i do today and why i've loved it for the past 22 years i mean it's getting taken away i mean i've never signed a petition before but they released a petition for saving filmstruck and it's the first petition i probably ever will sign in my life because i care about it that much and it hurts my heart that 
I accidentally canceled my subscription and it's gone on the seventh in two days. And we just need to preserve this stuff. Directors and actors have come out saying that it is a necessity that we preserve film and that we love it and cherish it for what it is. You might not have to be that guy or girl to go back and watch Haunted Hotel from 1907 or A Trip to the Moon or um, an international film from Andrei Tarkovsky or whatever, but you don't have to be that guy, but we have to remember that film is so broad and it has allowed us this opportunity to visit these new worlds and meet new characters and meet new people that are like us, that represent us, that allow us to see film or our world, our reality in a new perspective. And I love movies that come out today. Some of my favorite films of all time have come out in the last 10 years. I'm just living in the now and they're mirroring our reality. So if I go back and watch a film that mirrored the reality of 1935 or 1968 or 1982 that are still able to commentate on stuff we're going through today or I'm going through today or my brother or my sister or my dad, that's film right there. And that's the only medium, the only medium that is a visual and audio representation of us as people. And I think that if you try and delete that from history, it's a problem. So that's my rant. That's my rant. It's been a long month. Um, and so, yeah, that'll do it for today. Um, again, I'm going to uh, – I actually haven't said this yet, but Zachary Sosland – oh, I actually did say that at the top of the show. Zachary Sosland, he left some thoughts about some couple things I'm going to leave at the end of the show. So make sure you tune into that. Zachary, I know you're listening now. I'm going to try and figure out a way to incorporate um, your audio to be more in tune with what – I'm saying with the show, so like your Halloween thoughts and stuff like that. So again, um, I'm just working on a new writing opportunity that's come up. I'm working on a new video essay. Make sure you check out my YouTube channel, Showtime with Roman, for my uh, Fantastic Beasts video essay. uh, Talking about Newt Scamander, why he's a great character. Turned out quite well. It's only about five minutes long, so make sure you check that out. Let me know what you thought. Um, And... Again, I don't want to review my next project yet, but I'm pretty excited. Uh, the one thing I will tease for anyone that's listening, uh, my next video essay projects that I have lined up uh, is basically going to be uh, a trilogy. Um, and I'm inspired by Christoph Krzysztof Kieslowski's Three Colors trilogy um, in doing this project. So I hope it turns out well. It's going to require a lot of watching, rewatching, a lot of making sure I just nailed down everything I want to talk about because... I care about this topic so much in the films that I'm going to be talking about. I'm so very excited and I'm so very excited for you guys to listen to it. And I hope that you guys um, end up loving it. And I hope I do do it justice. So Christoph Kieslowski, that's who I'm inspired by with this uh, next three uh, projects. So I'm just got a smile on my face thinking about it. So um, anything else? Not that I can think of. November is going to be a great month. Uh, seasonal is starting at Target. It's already a nightmare. Uh, so busy all the time. So uh, I'll try and podcast whenever I'm wide awake and ready to go um, and not watching movies for those projects, like I said, So um, or writing. Um, so again, and then I have another secret thing coming up as well. Still waiting on an email back, and then I'll probably be able to uh, announce that on my social media. Uh, if you follow me at RBC Roman on Twitter, Roman RBC one on Instagram and Roman RBC on Facebook, along with my Letterboxd account. So go to letterbox.com and then uh, create an account there. It's just a social network where you can log films, cre- create a diary. Uh, I literally 
have seen. I can tell you how many films I've seen, when I saw them, how many times I've seen them, and I have. You can make lists. You can follow people. Uh, you can give the site money so that it can be an even better site than it already is, uh, despite its technical issues all the time. Um, so just go there, letterbox.com, and then follow me, Roman RBC. Uh, just past 400 followers, which is pretty cool. So uh, that'll do it for uh, this week's episode of the Showtime with Roman podcast. I hope you enjoyed my reviews for Halloween. Uh, sorry if I seem like a little bit out of breath. I haven't done this in a while, so my throat isn't entirely trained to talk for this long. And uh, just go ahead and check out Zach's thoughts at the end of the show. And I'll be back next week with more news, more trailer talk, more talking about movies, everything I'm hyped for. Hopefully I can see Suspiria soon. I'll see you in the future. So I saw a new Suspiria movie after seeing the original today, and it was pretty good. It's not as good. I wouldn't say it's as good as the original, but it's still good, and it's worth checking out. Also... My favorite part, dissimilar to the original, my favorite parts are the aesthetics and the music. Although fans of the original love it because of its aesthetics and music probably won't like this movie because it's very different. But overall, go check it out. So I just saw a new Halloween movie and I'm just going to say it. This is one of the most Disappointing movies I've seen all year. I, I, I know that sounds like a lot, but there were some things I did like about this movie. Like, I, like Jamie Lee Curtis was great. The kills were also great. Like, very gory, but, like, like just enough to be effective. But there's just so much about this movie that could have been better. And it, it, just, it was just so lazy. Like, like, I don't even hate this movie, but the more I think about it, like, the less I like it. Sorry.